Amen. Thank you for the good singing. Please be seated. Well, we finish our study of 1 Thessalonians today. If you have a Bible and you'd like to turn there with me, we're going to the second half of chapter 5 to 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12. And I will read to you this uh, rapid-fire staccato finish. As I've mentioned to you before, it's the Apostles' Custom, as it is for parents when they part from their children, to give a whole bunch of last-minute instructions of the first importance that it might be ringing in their ears at the end. So let's see how it goes from 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that that grace would be with us, that you yourself would sanctify us through this word, so inspired by your Spirit that we might attain to some measure of the riches of the holiness to which we are called in Christ Jesus and abound more and more. We pray that you would lead us in that way today, for Christ's sake. Amen. You might know the name Heather King. She was a writer for National Public, Public Radio and commented on various things. She became a Christian about 10 years ago, and she wrote a book about her experience of first getting sober and meeting the Lord and what it meant for her to be a member of a church. And she writes with just raw, unvarnished honesty which I found very beautiful and compelling. Here's what she wrote. Nothing shatters our egos like worshiping with people we did not handpick. The humiliation of discovering that we are thrown in with extremely unpromising people, people who are broken, misguided, wishy-washy, out for themselves, People who are us. But we don't come to church to be with people who are like us in the way that we want them to be. I repeat. But we don't come to church to be with people who are like us in the way we want them to be. 
We come because we have staked our souls on the fact that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And that the church is the best place, the only place, to be. While we all struggle to figure out what that means, we come because we'd be hard-pressed to say, which is the bigger of the two scandals of God? That he loves us or that he loves everybody else? Welcome to the grit and grace of Christian community. I think that's very well said. Uh, This is a word today, obviously, to the brethren, as he repeats that several times, and I will be speaking according to that tenor, but you know I never like to have a sermon without being able to speak to all and to have an invitation to Christ. And so I say right at the beginning, if you're like, well, what's it all about and what do I need the church for? I, I think we have it set very clearly before us that we are here because we have staked our souls on this fact, and fact it is, Christ the way, the truth, and the life. And if you need to figure that out, there is no better place than with these people which you would not have handpicked, nor would I, but are loved nevertheless by the Lord our God. It's a wonderful thing to feel like you belong. One of the reasons that social media, no doubt, is so popular is that we can easily find people, we can find ourselves in among people, who are like us and who accept us and people with whom we belong, no matter how nerdy we are. That's also the blessing of family, you know. That's the beauty of it. You can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. But the family is the place where you belong and they love you no matter what. The church is the family of God. We're even more diverse, of course. In fact, the bigger we get, diverse it is. Uh, Thank you. We find ourselves brought together by God in this gritty and graceful way. The rest of you will get that like 10 minutes later and you'll be laughing in the middle of the sermon, okay? The diverse, diverse it gets, okay. All right. Uh, All right. In this closing section of the letter, Paul instructs us on how we might be this gritty, graceful community, how we might live in love as brothers in the midst of this joyful mess called the Christian life. You notice that he does use the word brothers five times in this short passage. You'll also notice that there is a theme of peace from the, at the beginning and the end, be at peace among yourselves. It says toward the beginning, may the God of peace sanctify you completely. It says at the end, everything he says does seem to have this goal of peace among the brethren as its goal. Peace in the church, peace in the heart, peace with God. How can we live together as brethren at peace? I even titled the sermon that, and then I came across this other guy's title for his sermon. He called it Simple Commands for Serious Christians. And I thought, oh man, that's even better. So the subtitle of my sermon today is Simple Commands for Serious Christians. Not serious commands for simple Christians, but... Simple commands for serious Christians. You see, to answer this question of how we are to go forward, Paul gives us no less than 20 commands in this short section and two benedictions to remind us that it is all of the Lord and of his grace. 
Simple commands for serious Christians. We begin by jumping in to my very favorite part of the passage, verses 12 and 13, about spiritual leaders. We urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. There will be a sermon series on this at some point on these two verses, but uh, for now, let me simply say that you know that uh, elders are accountable for all aspects of the local church, its teaching and the shepherding of the people and prayer and preaching the word and evangelism and guarding the flock from false teaching and helping resolve conflicts among the members and overseeing church finances and government and on and on. The Bible says elsewhere, they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. We realize that sometimes it's hard to love and highly esteem people like me, especially people who have to admonish you. And you must assume that that admonishing is come, however blundering and stumbling it is, because of love and because I love you and care about you. Don't react. Who does he think he is? He's got problems too. What gives him the right to correct me? Well, God has given me the responsibility and the other elders for which we must answer, and that is no easy accountability. So please esteem highly in love, at least for the sake of their work. It's easy to cause a stink. Paul transitions by saying, be at peace among yourselves. Spiritual leadership. We have, secondly, in verses 14 and 15, commands about spiritual relationships. It it begins with these uh, commands about about you in seeking to help one another to walk in Christ. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, Be patient with all. Four aspects here of a sensitive ministry that you are to have one to another. Obviously, you notice right off that one approach does not fit for everyone. One size does not fit all. You need to determine where people are spiritually and what what they need. If someone is faint-hearted, they don't need admonishing, but encouragement or comfort. Uh, if someone's spiritually immature, needs gentle instruction on how to grow up in the Lord, you don't encourage the unruly. They need a stronger word of warning. And so it would be hard-hearted likewise to scold the weak who need help to get back on their feet. So you need to have some discernment. You, you don't just act the same way toward everyone. You know that when you have children, you have to discern whether they are acting immaturely or defiantly. If a three-year-old is acting like a three-year-old, you try to help him behave in a better way. If a 10-year-old is acting like a three-year-old, he needs stronger correction. Before you exhort or warn or admonish another, gauge his spirit and see what he needs. But you do have to engage in something that we all tend to avoid. The first word here is warn, or many of you have admonish, an unruly brother or sister in Christ. Are you up for this? 
This is a duty that is difficult to do. Most of us don't like doing this. I don't like doing it. In fact, if you like admonishing people, you probably shouldn't be doing it. But it is a vital part, you see, of this love and ministry one to another, which we all need to understand and we all need to practice. Without it, the whole church begins to succumb to temptation and the deceitfulness of sin and the wishy-washiness that flushes churches. Well, this is what has destroyed many modern churches today. The secular philosopher Alan Bloom pointed out over 30 years ago now that tolerance has become the chief virtue of Western civilization. That is to say, if you call anyone's behavior, no matter how outrageous, evil, or wrong, you are viewed as arrogant and intolerant, which he says is the only sin left. He wrote, there is no enemy other than the man who is not open to everything. Well, the church feels pressed into that mold. You, at, in, in, at work, at school, in other places, uh, have to be compelled sometimes to have this approach. The church is called to be different. We need to be honest and loving and admonishing. It's part of our responsibility. Perhaps you're thinking, that's the job of the elders, isn't it? <clears throat> yes, we did see that in verse 12, but here, brethren, begins verse 14. It, this is about you, the whole church. Other texts are very clear about this command. The second letter, Paul tells the church, second letter of the Thessalonians, don't regard somebody who's sinning as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Or in Romans, I am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Same word. In fact, in 1970, Lucy Ann's uh, father-in-law, uh, Jay Adams, launched the biblical counseling movement with his book, Competent to Counsel, based on the very word that we are discussing here in the passage. Happens twice in our passage. Newthetic counseling comes from the word that is here twice. Some of you have admonish or warn or counsel, uh, but we are to do this and to be at peace among ourselves, or even in order that we might be at peace among ourselves. How you admonish leads to peace or maybe hostility, but as much as it depends on you, it is to be at peace. So, admonish, he begins, the unruly. Uh, then comfort the faint-hearted, he says, those who are timid or distressed or fearful. These Thessalonians were new believers, wet behind the ears. They were undergoing the strain of persecution, as we have seen. Things were very new to them. Those who are tender-hearted, faint-hearted, comfort them. Likewise, uphold the weak, uh, those who find themselves unable to stand on their own well. There's many Christians who really need others to encourage, to be there with them. The word picture here is of holding on to people or even wrapping your arms around them to hold them up, to support them, lest they should faint or stumble. And he says, be patient with all. Be patient with all. Okay, they may be draining you. The unruly may be challenging you. The faint-hearted leaning upon you, the weak depleting you. Meanwhile, you are called to admonish and encourage and so forth and assist 
with patience. Because we're all a work in progress. We all are in need of such ministry at various times. None of us has arrived. And it's in this context that this admonishing also must be understood. It's not about rebuking with a heavy hand or severity, but to be able to counsel, as the word is sometimes translated, with full of love and compassion and concern in our dealings with others, admonishing as necessary, giving and receiving counsel counsel patiently. Right. Okay. Well, it's a lot of commands. It's the machine gun. We we go to verse 15 to another. When we're wronged, we want to repay in kind. He writes, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. And John Stott has just a great way of summarizing. He teaches not the irresponsibility, which encourages evil, but the forbearance, which renounces revenge. Okay? Not the irresponsibility that encourages evil, but the forbearance that renounces revenge. That's a razor's edge sometimes. Positively speaking, though, he says we are to pursue the kind of love that seeks the highest good of others, that God would be glorified in their lives. That word pursue can even mean, in other, other passages, to persecute. It means to go after something with strong effort, even uh, a violent effort sometimes, depending on context. You could paraphrase somebody did, rather than seek vengeance, you go after a person's good with vengeance. Okay? It's an active pursuit of the good of others. All right. We've considered verses 12 through 15, spiritual leaders, spiritual relationships. We come third to verses 16 through 22 to spiritual duties. Spiritual duties, where he gives eight short, rapid-fire, penetrating statements at the heart of the Christian life. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you, and so forth. Here is the typically extravagant way in which the Christian life is described. It is always described in the Bible. There is this joy that is to be overall central, despite all the sorrows that a holy man or woman must feel in a world of sin and death and all the agonies of spiritual warfare, as Paul admits elsewhere, that we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Here is the joy that is rooted deep down in the fact of Christ's victory and a solid, indestructible pleasure that knowing that we are loved by God and that he is near at hand. And that, then similarly, when Paul says pray without ceasing, he doesn't mean that you should never give, an, give a wink of sleep to your eye. Uh, nothing else but prayer day and night as with rejoice always, he is speaking about this overall bent and drift of life and soul so that life becomes, in origins, wonderful phrase, one great connected prayer. One great connected prayer. Interrupted now and then. Or I thought that John Donne's words were so beautiful and encouraging, I put them in the bulletin. You might have to 
actually read them with me because he's a poet. And beyond that, he's a, a poet from several centuries ago. So it's a little flowery. And it reads better than it speaks. But he says that the soul, excuse me, that soul that is accustomed to direct herself to God on every occasion, that as a flower at sunrising conceives as sense of God in every beam of his and spread and dilates itself toward him in a thankfulness in every small blessing that he sheds upon her, that soul who whatsoever string be stricken in her, bass or treble, her high or her low estate is ever turned toward God. That soul prays sometimes when it does not know that it prays. Yeah, i got to read that again. The point is, having such a knowledge of God, such a sensitivity to God, having a thought of God in all the areas of life, you are praying when you don't even know you're praying. That heart, that mind, it, at all times is to be ours. And if it is, Dunn says, then we are praying without ceasing. The God who cannot lie has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. The angel of the Lord encamps around those that fear him. He cares for those who trust in him. Such words give us a confidence that lead us to rejoice always, no matter the situation at the moment, to pray at all times, to give thanks always for this near and present God who is able surely to shepherd us home. So, three impossible commands. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. And then he shifts to some more commands about prophetic discernment, which we need to hear again today. You might have heard of the name Eben Johnson, a wealthy man who had invested in gemstones. He spent $3 million on a blue diamond called the Streeter Diamond that Sam Walton, founder of Walmart, had won in a poker game. He spent seven, excuse me, $2.7 million for a collection of diamonds called the Russian Blue. He dropped another $17 million then into the Sylvia Walton collection, a set of diamonds that belonged to Sam Walton's daughter. And on and on, in all, Johnson invest, invested some $83 million in costly gems, only to find out later that he had just bought worthless glass. Sam Walton didn't even have a daughter named Sylvia. His Florida-based jeweler had made up all these stories and sold him some worthless rock. Oh, he was caught and sentenced to 40 years in prison, ordered to pay back more than $78 million in restitution. <laughs> Eben Johnson will probably be very unlikely to see anything like that. He was wise and uh, shrewd, I should say, and got the money offshore. But he should have exercised some discernment by having those stones examined by some other expert before he invested his whole life's fortune. But far worse than this is being cheated and deceived about eternal life by spiritual con artists. 
Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, we read elsewhere, and his ministers as ministers of righteousness. So Paul's commands demonstrate this spiritual discernment and balance that we are to maintain. Don't quench the spirit. Don't despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. The Holy Spirit here being compared to a fire, which may be quenched. Quenched, he says, by despising prophecies. You're looking at me to say, what does that mean? The difficult question for the church today, it seems, is this. What prophecies do they continue today? Pentecostal movement began in 1901, and now one out of every 12 human beings on the face of the earth is a Pentecostal or charismatic. So what do I have to say? Well, like me, maybe you've been to churches where there's been prophecy every week. And if we despise that, are we quenching the spirit, as has sometimes been threatened? Well, after much thought, searching of soul, and searching of the scriptures, I will simply say my understanding that the church's foundation, as we read in Ephesians 2, was laid in the apostles and prophets, the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And that foundation, apostles and prophets, we are God's house, God's building that rises from that foundation. The prophets, like the apostles, have completed their work, and you are holding a copy of the word of the Lord. Or as Greg Beale put it, the duty for the modern church is to guard the truth of the prophetic scriptural revelation and reject false teachings. So we can certainly say, as Nehemiah did, that the Lord has put things or laid things upon our heart. We can talk about illumination and direction and so forth. Absolutely. If someone, however, wants to direct you by some prophecy, by some word of the Lord, however, uh, you know that typically prophecy comes with signs that is authenticating miracles. So if the person has a word from the Lord, ask for a sign. Right from the beginning, when the word of the Lord was given, Moses, after when he gave the law, Right in the law, he said that all such utterances henceforth are to be judged by this truth of the sign. And if some sign comes true even by the written word so that you don't go after some god capriciously, don't be cheated by the gem sellers of the spiritual world and find yourself poor indeed. You'll ask, well, what about dreams or other things? Aren't many Muslims coming to the Lord through such things? Well, the Lord himself, uh, sorry, the Lord can and does reveal himself through providential government in the world. It's true, even to the guiding and directing of thoughts as he sees fit. The Lord put it on my heart, says Nehemiah, and so, so forth. Well, there have been several times in history that God has even supplied his people with some supernatural knowledge at critical times, but you notice that those were never the rule for anyone else never a revelation of faith or morals for the church. I have a whole sermon on that if you want. It's very different to have some knowledge of something that you couldn't know otherwise, miraculously. Another thing to proclaim, as Joseph Smith or some other prophet, revelation of faith or morals for the whole church. Uh, 
as the apostles and prophets did. Paul urges a spiritual balance. While we must not quench the spirit, we must be discerning so as not to fall prey to false spiritual experiences or false teaching. Test all things. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form or appearance or kind of evil. That's not quenching the Spirit, being discerning. That's obeying the Spirit. We must be discerning so that we do not fall prey to the many false spiritual experiences or false teachings that result from them. Now he pauses here in the midst of all those commands to give us his first benediction an assurance that in the midst of all these commands and all these telling us to do, like, okay, got that, got that, got that, got that, got that. He says, just so you know, that the God of all peace himself will sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless, that it be preserved, that is, by the Lord at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. My fourth point security in God. Security in God. He has a lot of commands for it. He has a lot of last-minute things that he wants to have ringing in their ears. Remember this, remember that. But, you know, I want you to remember that your eternal life, your sanctification, your salvation from beginning to end is of the Lord, dear friends. And do not misunderstand with all that I tell you, with all that I'm putting upon you, It is the Lord himself who will safely bring you home. Many people have noted the similarity of the language in this passage to Job, chapters 1 and 2. Job, who was also a man blameless, connection here, who abstained from all evil, connection here, who held fast, connection here, to his integrity. Uh, Blamelessness doesn't mean sinlessness, certainly for Job or for others. It means without accusation against you, and to be sanctified completely in context certainly doesn't mean that we'll never sin or sin again. Uh, Perhaps I should mention that John Wesley and some in the holiness tradition, section of the church, teach that it is possible to become perfectly sanctified in this life. Dare I say, if anyone talked to Mrs. Wesley about that, the imbalanced teaching would have been quickly laid to rest. But, alas, he was on horseback from place to place. Okay. The word complete, uh, which does come into our English language as integrity, by the way, uh, has a certain connection. Uh, somebody who is not perfect, but who has, who has all the parts together. Not half here on Sunday, half here on Monday, if you know what I mean. And so when Paul emphasizes here spirit, soul, and body, he is multiplying words like he so often does, uh, saying sometimes the same thing in different ways, uh, thoughts, intentions, uh, uh, and so forth, to say every part of you, just as we should love God with heart and soul and strength and mind, not that we have a four-part anthropology, but with, with everything, with our whole being. Paul is often in the habit of stacking up words to say the same thing. So it is here. The message is that in the midst of all these responsibilities and commands and how we're to behave in the church of God and how we're to relate to each other and to elders and to the Holy Spirit and, ah, well, remember, the God of peace himself will give you holiness. A Godward focus at Christ's coming 
will be the secret to all these things. May the God of peace himself sanctify you. May you be preserved blameless, that is to say, by the God of peace himself. He is the actor. Even as we act, even as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, we know it is God who is at work in us to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Even as we work, even as we do these good works, we know that having been saved by grace, it is these works which he has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, dear friends, you are not on your own. It's not God save you now. You go be holy. Oh, no. Salvation is of the Lord. Understand the will of God. Commit yourself to it. And recognize that he is guiding you by his loving fatherly hand every step of the way. The God of peace himself. This is the good news. We've seen spiritual leaders, spiritual relationships, Spiritual duties, security in God. Fifth and finally, he has a few more instructions on spiritual community. The church that is the community that prays for one another. Verse 25, brethren, pray for us. The church is the community that warmly shows the love of Christ to one another. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I'll be lined up at the door later. Uh, you say, should we apply this literally? And if we say this is cultural, is that not a very slippery slope? Um, I mean, in some churches today, men greet other men and women greet other women with a kiss on the lips. And that grosses me out too, right? Okay. I argue that a holy kiss was a common cultural and culturally appropriate means of greeting one another, certainly of greeting brethren in Paul's day, that we can adapt to culturally appropriate greetings in our day, right? Okay, okay. No, like brothers, right? Like, like brothers. You don't have to have the full-on hug, men to women. <clears throat> you know what I mean. Uh, but, you know, in, in a way that uh, sisters are, are loved. A holy kiss. Uh, Paul says, uh, greet all the brethren. Uh, actually, not even instructing them how to greet each other, but the, the, the point he's making in context here, give everyone a kiss for me right? Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. That is to say, for, for me, he's sending his own affectionate greeting to them. The, the, the kiss was not a Christian invention, by the way. It was the common custom of that society. Uh, I, I was, uh, a, a, a while ago, uh, two uh, Turks met each other for the first time. I was there, and uh, mm, 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 uh, on the cheeks, it, 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 it's still the, still the custom in many parts of that Part of the world today, when Jesus goes to the house of a Pharisee, whom he doesn't even know, right? He invites him over to, to dine, and he, rem- he remembers his rudeness and coldness, saying, when I came to your house, you gave me no kiss. Now, that's just expected, right? So the Christians added this emphasis of a holy kiss. That's the Christian part, a holy kiss, uh, not to take advantage of anyone you see. Middle of the second century, Justin Martyr notes that the holy kiss had become a part of the liturgy of the Lord's Supper. It was then only between members of the same gender, and then only on the cheek. Um, But uh, then a little later, it was practiced by everyone, men to women, 
and there was a little trouble. In fact, even some early church councils had to issue some regulations concerning the circumstances in which a kiss could be exchanged. Let's just stick to what we're doing, right, brothers and sisters? Okay, good. All right, it doesn't have to be a kiss, but, you know, it's, it's affectionate. Come here, stand up here. All right, all right. You know, that's how, that's how brothers do it today, and uh, thanks. Uh, we... we John Murray has a nice little section on his ethics book. It doesn't have to be the kiss. It has to be just as affectionate. Okay? All right. So the church says it's... uh, So, sorry. So he says the church is a community that prays for one another. The church is a community that warmly shows the love of Christ toward one another. And the church is a community that takes God's word seriously. Verse 27, I charge you or adjure you by the Lord that this epistle... Be read to all the holy brethren. It's a strong word here used often to put people under oath before God. Uh, I adjure thee by the living God. Uh, Jesus is uh, put on, on, on trial, right? The apostle describes his letters here and especially elsewhere as to be read in the sanctuary when only scripture was to be read, right? To be read in worship to the brethren as the authoritative revelation of God. Only scripture was to be allowed in the service. That includes apostolic teaching, however. And the application for us is that we are to grow in holiness as we take God's word seriously. As I read it, as I preach it, as you read it, as you ponder it and apply it to yourself, holiness grows out of taking God's words seriously. And, well, finally, brethren, holiness goes when we experience the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, after 20 commands, I'll try to go through all of them, give them due regard. He wants to finish, as always, verse 28, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This will save us from legalism. Or I read this week, somebody said, uh, if I can get it right, it's going to be really embarrassing if I don't, right? Fundamentalism, he, he says, I grew up in fundamentalism, no fun, um, all damn, and not enough mental. <laughs> all right, a few of you grew up in that church, you understand. Okay, so, um, all right, uh, hey, uh, thankful for all the brothers and sisters everywhere who believe in Jesus. But the point is, when we have as the foundation of our faith anything else than the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we will have neither grace nor sanctification as we ought. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is that which teaches us as his people. That, uh, what does he say here? Teaches us to renounce worldliness and so forth and to pursue the things of God. God's grace is a teacher. It is the amazing grace at the foundation of this letter, as we read earlier at the beginning, which becomes then the root of every other step of holiness. As Paul tells Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Or Peter closes his second letter, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He closes a letter with a benediction of grace. And you know Paul's method so often, he gives what God has done. And he says, therefore, in light of what he has made you to be, 
Be what you are. Do what God has made you to do. Fulfill what grace has already done in your status. Be imitators of God as dear children as you are. And we understand and live that we are at all times under and, and, and from God's grace. And that always results in true holiness. Romans 6, 1 and 2. So... That is the last word, and I will leave you with it. Let us pour out God's grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, upon ourselves and each other. And thank you for going with me through this marvelous little letter of 1 Thessalonians. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us such a reason that we might rejoice unendingly without ceasing, giving thanks always in all things for your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we mourn that we have had far too little of this joy, too little thought of you in your ways, too little holiness in our lives, too little affection and care in our church. But we consecrate our, ourselves again to you, O Lord, soul and spirit, mind and body, heart and life, offering you our will and our affections and praying by your Holy Spirit that you would bear that good fruit in our hearts and faithfulness in our actions, which is the fruit of grace by which we are saved. Through faith in that, not of ourselves, but it is your gift, O God, not of works, lest we should boast. But, O God, make those good works abound that we might walk in them, which you prepared beforehand that we should so do. It is our great and noblest pleasure to know you. Grant that we might henceforth live from you and glorify you and enjoy you both now and forever.